Today's episode is the first of several episodes we're going to be doing on first-person data and first-person methods. I think that first-person data is interesting because it really gets to the core of what it means to be at the edge of scientific inference and brings up a lot of important questions on what it means for data to be replicable. Originally, I'd intended this to be part of the science versus pseudoscience mini-series that I was working on, but at this point we picked up enough speakers that it might be worth considering its own series in its own right, but it is heavily related to these issues of what constitutes science versus pseudoscience. And in this set of interviews, I'll probably be taking a bit more of a passive role in the interview than I usually do, uh, simply because I basically know nothing about this field, although I find it very interesting, and I'll be learning along with you. So enjoy the show. I came across the term first-person uh, sciences and first-person methods, and it was presented as something where uh, it was sort of a topic that had made a transition from me considering some people have been considering or deriding it as a pseudoscience. And however, uh, this author who I was reading um, said that it was a essentially an area that was gaining steam and gaining uh, gaining uh, credible traction within essentially the hard scientific community. Um, and I didn't know very much about it, but um, I looked into a bit and saw that there was quite a bit of philosophical work. And I thought this this actually might seem it seemed like something where it'd be very useful to help uh, talk about maybe some like the hard boundaries of like the nature of science experimentation data and things like that. So I appreciate you. I'm going to be taking obviously um, a little bit more of a, a more passive role in this conversation than usual, because I'd like just to hear your thoughts, ideas, uh, summary on this. But um, obviously as the first of several speakers who's going to be talking about the nature of first-person data and first-person methods. I really appreciate you coming on and sort of being that initial guide. So uh, maybe first you should just introduce yourself and your research interests, and then we'll just get to the questions. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I am a philosopher of mind and sciences of the mind, such as neuroscience, ecology, uh, even computation sciences. And um, yeah, I've been around for a while. Um, I have written about first-person data before, so I do have opinions about this. So, uh, Galtiero, I guess the first question is, um, I guess I've been sort of conflating these two things. Uh, I've heard the term first-person data. I've heard first-person methods. Um, are these one and the same thing? Are they worth distinguishing? What are they? What's going on? They're worth distinguishing. Um, and I would uh, slightly disagree with your source. First-person data are things, data derived from things like verbal reports about your own mind. Um, so one example would be, what emotion are you feeling right now? You know, your answer would be a source of first-person data. Or uh, look at these two shades. Um, are they the same color? Do they look like they're the same color? Do they look the same to you? You know, if you're just asking, are they the same? Maybe arguably that's not for person data, but if you're asking, do they look the same to you? Um, then the answer is a source of first person data and, uh, first person data don't have to be verbal. They can press this button. If you see the Necker cube facing towards you or press this other button, if it's facing away from you. Um, that would also be a source of first person data. Um, cause it depends on how things look to you and the stimulus is the same either way. Um, but the behavior is not verbal. It's pressing a button. So this kind of thing has been used in psychology or, uh, psychophysics 
or uh, even neuroscience, uh, at least in some form since the beginning of these disciplines as sciences. Um, but yes, they have gone up and down in uh, acceptability, and especially in certain circles. Uh, so in psychophysics, they've always, always been used. And I don't think they've been especially controversial because you can't really do psychophysics without them. Um, but in more mainstream behavioral psychology, um, they definitely went out of fashion in the behaviorist era when people did think, oh, this stuff is unscientific. Um, and this is about first-person data. But first-person methods, I think, is a more uh, specialized term that's used by some people, um, most often in my experience, to, uh, to distinguish the use of first-person data in science as a kind of science that's different from ordinary science. Ordinary science would be third-person science, but using first-person data in science would be first-person science and it or using first-person methods, and that's supposed to be a different kind of science. And I actually disagree with that. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about it. Yeah. So um, just to quickly summarize uh, for someone who's obviously on the learning trajectory for this, um, I guess it's that uh, we have uh, first, we have a thing called first person data. Uh, we have uh, scientific methods that use first person data are called first person methods. And I guess that sort of experimental methods. For some people. For some people. Oh yeah. So, so here's, here's where the, maybe uh one of the first branches off. Um, and then there's also the idea, the question of whether or not that these are sort of, um, is, the, is the question whether or not they're sort of scientifically privileged in some way or alternatively that they're sort of scientifically sullied in some way. Um, I guess that's the, the other issue where some people don't believe that these, this form of data is scientifically useful or yeah, it's compromised. I would say that two, two big questions about first-person data are, are first-person data a legitimate um, way of doing science or a legitimate type of data for doing science? And second, are they reliable enough that you can do good science with them? Okay. Oh, yeah. So essentially, is, is the first bit essentially a more a fundamental issue or is, it, is, is this fundamentally in the realm of science? And the other one is regardless of whether it is in the realm of science. And we have had quite a bit on, you know, even distinguishing what does that even mean? Um, that uh, the question is like, even if, even if the data is, has some of these useful properties inherently, whether then you can actually take them and use them for something useful and scientific. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And I'm happy to talk about both of those questions. Perfect. Uh, which one do you want to start on? I'd start with the first, um, our, sci our, our first person data legitimate at all. Um, and the reason this is contentious is because some people would argue that first-person data are private and scientific data are supposed to be public. Um, so first-person data uh, seem to be private to some people because they are um, the ex inner private experiences of a subject. You're asking for somebody to tell you how they feel or how they perceive something, um, what they're thinking about or what they want rather than something that other people can observe independently. Um, and uh, so people who think of first-person data that way as the mental states themselves, they think they are special, they are different they, because they're private and norm 
formally scientific data are public. And so that, this gives rise to the whole idea that there's a first person science different from ordinary science because it uses these, these first person data, which are private and not public like other data. Um, but the, but so, you know, not everybody agrees with that. And I'm one of those who disagrees. I think this is just the, the wrong way to construe first person data. I think the right way to think of first person data is as information that you extract from behavior. Now, the behaviors themselves are special. So they're like, you know, verbal first person behavior, like, you know, you telling me how you feel, what you're thinking, how you're perceiving something. But then it's my job as a scientist to extract information from that. And that information is public information. So first person data properly understood are public data. And therefore, there's not really any such thing as first-person science or first-person methods distinguished or different from ordinary science. It, using first-person data in science is legitimate because it works the same way as any other science. You have to extract some information from something publicly observable. In this case, it's these first-person behaviors. And there's something special about these first-person behaviors, but not that they are private data unlike other data. Um, just to ask a very uh, a very simplistic question, um, just so I can get a a little bit of the landscape. Um, so uh, obviously, there's a section of people who think that uh, by virtue of the data being private, that is essentially I wouldn't say maybe that its value is compromised or that it's essentially in some way fundamentally different from other scientific data. Is that um, so? Is is that one idea? Is there anyone who believes that essentially by virtue of it being private? it has additional qualities of any sort. Like, is there anyone saying, yeah, it's this way and that's a good thing? Or is it only people say it's either as good as regular scientific data or just worse? Um, I don't know if anybody thinks that there is something good about them being private, but there's definitely a divide between people who think that they, you know, they're different kind of data, I mean, that they're private, uh, between those who then go, uh, uh, go on to say, and therefore we can't trust them and we can't rely on them in science. They're not legitimate. And those who say, no, 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 we can still use them and they are legitimate. It's just a different kind of science. Um, and then they have to try to say why they're legitimate since you know, they're not public data. And if they're not public data, presumably they can't be um, validated the way normal other normal data can be validated. Um, so then they try to say something about why they are, that we can still use them, why they're legitimate, even though they're, you know, allegedly private. All right, cool. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because I, I know it seems a little bit crazy that someone might think it's like, oh, this data is not private and therefore I value it even more. But I just want to make sure that as I sort of understand the landscape that there wasn't, uh, you know, there... There's, all, there's always some group of people who are willing to believe something that's just completely orthogonal to any other argument that people are making. Um, so I appreciate well, that. Well, and there, aren't, there are definitely people who think they are you know, indispensable to understanding the mind, um, even though they think they're private and therefore they, you know, it's the science of using them is going to be different from the science of using ordinary data. Um, there's a whole tradition in philosophy that had a lot of impact on psychology itself and other disciplines called phenomenology. 
And phenomenology is a tradition of people studying the mind from the first person. Um, so inevitably, they have to rely on what we're now calling here first-person data. Not only that, they don't usually do it in the normal way that psychologists operate by having a psychologist studying a subject who is separate from the psychologist. They usually do their own phenomenological study from the inside of their own mind. Um, and, 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 you know, it's a long story. You know, it's, a, it's an important tradition and there's many people who, um, um, who participate in this tradition. But one thing that they have in common is that, generally speaking, they um, rely on their own um, study of their own experiences from the inside, from the first person. So from that perspective, you know, they couldn't do it without relying on um, basically their own first-person data, if you will. Um, and they do think of it in a different way than uh, the typical scientists, because the, because the scientist and the observer are kind of the same person. Or I'm sorry. The scientist and the subject matter, you know, or the 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 the, the subject of the re that's that's being studied are the same person often in phenomenology. Cool, I appreciate that. And um, uh, going back to uh, the beliefs that you said you had, uh, that you said that you had about this, where essentially um, that by the data, the first person data is essentially the product of uh, human behavior and so essentially if am i am i say am i summarizing this correctly that uh you you view pers first person data as essentially the emission of uh some type of human behavior and that by virtue of it being an emission um i i realize that that's, that's a there's a stochastic process term but you know it's it's sort of like a um it by virtue of it being an emission of this human behavior that it's not fundamentally different it's simply different it's simply a, a it, the data is produced by different data generated process that is, I guess, part of nature. Right. Um, so, you know, obviously in this case, the data are produced or, you know, the data are extracted from behavior that's produced by a normally a conscious um, behaving agent um, who is trying to convey information about their own mind. So, you know, in this regard, this is different from uh, ordinary sources of data, like measuring measurement apparatus or experimental apparatus in ordinary science, where, you know, there's no agent involved in generating the, the data or the sources of data besides the scientist. There's a whole, like, apparatus, there's measurement instruments, um, and then, you know, combination of the uh, experimental apparatus and the measurement instruments generates the data. Um, in this case, though, you know, the, 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 the subject of the research is the agent and, uh, and the agent is also, um, trying to convey some information about their own mind, which is what is being studied. So it's different. It is different. So would, would maybe an analogy be something like, just like there is, you know, a mechanism or a device that would measure the salinity of the ocean or that there might be a wearable medical device that would emit a person's heart rate. And so essentially the medical device is telling you uh, from essentially uh, a, an electrical signal what it views the heart rate is. And uh, in, in our case, this might be, for example, 
the person is telling you like what color is the sky and they say blue and the data is that essentially this is blue coming from a person telling you the process going on in their mind yeah um except that if they're just telling you what color the sky is i wouldn't call that first person data i would call it first person data if they're telling you what color the sky look looks to them um as opposed to what it's a subtle difference but uh, you know and yeah, it no, doesn't really matter for purposes no 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 um, I, I do appreciate that yeah. could you could you actually um because I, th- I think that is useful could you um give that a few uh lines of conversation yeah, because, um, you know, for example, colors can look very different under different illumination conditions. You know, if there's more light, less light, if the light is itself colored um, and so forth. So um, so the same shade of the same color can look quite different under different conditions. There's a lot of illusions, famous illusions about how the same shade um, of color can, in, in, within the same picture, looks very different in two different parts of the picture depending on what's around it what surrounds it um so you can ask people questions like that you can ask well look at this square on the picture and that square on the picture are those the same shade of color or does it look like they're the same shade of color to you versus are they the same shade of color and you you need different operations to do that you know to to decide whether they are the same shade of color, you should eliminate the context and just look at those shades in isolation and compare them. Um, but, to, but, to, but to answer the question, do they look like they're the same shade of color? You do have to look at them in context. Um, and the answers are different because they might be the same shade of color objectively, but they look very different in the context of that picture. So it's, you know, it, these are, these are questions that, you know, questions about the, the experience that cannot really easily be answered without asking people how they experience things. Uh, so I do think that first-person data are useful in science. Um, often they're the best way to know <laughs> the answer to these questions. Yeah, and um, I guess uh, just give the other side its due. What would you say are sort of the strongest arguments or strongest points that these methods are not useful. And I guess, first of all, is that view held by, I'm not sure if you have numbers, but like, is that view held by, is it like a 50-50 split or is it a minority majority split? Um, how, how many wow. people, like what, so what portion, for what portion of the f- philosophical population is that, is the counter view popular? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think most philosophers would probably think that first-person data are legitimate, um, and it's probably fair to say that they've been coming, they've become more popular even among neuroscientists. I think psychologists have been using them for a long time, um, especially some psychologists. Um, yeah, I, I would guess they've become they've they've become more more popular, and more legitimate. Um, outside of the of the circles that have used them all along, like psychophysicists, um, but you know the skeptics do have um, many good points to make because in many many contexts, um, people give all kinds of unreliable um, information about their own mind. People are prone to all kinds of biases, delusions, confabulations. Um, 
and, and the mind is tricky. You know, the mind itself, you know, or the brain plays tricks on you. So, um, you know, you might think that you're telling a reliable uh, story about what's happening in your mind and uh, you might not realize that you're not. Um, so, uh, I mean, there are a lot of famous experiments, uh, for example, by social psychologists in which they interview people and they say, oh, like you went into this grocery store and you picked this product. Um, why do you think you picked it? And they show that people um, underestimate contextual factors such as the placement of these products on the shelves, whether they are, you know, um, at, at, at the same height as their eyes or uh, too high or too low. Um, and they have no idea that that plays a role in whether they picked a certain product or not. So um, this is just a random example, but, um, but there are a lot of, there's a lot of evidence that in many cases, first um, behaviors, like behaviors that are sources of first-person data, um, are not reliable uh, sources of information about, you know, certain mental states or mental processes. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, and, and that's interesting to me because it, in a way it goes, all, even though it's kind of, it, it goes against the reliability of first-person data, it also goes against the idea that first-person data are really truly private. If they were truly private, you couldn't show that they're unreliable. Um, that is an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, you can show that. Yeah. No, 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 no. That no. The, I was just repeating myself. The, the, the you know, it, this is this is an important point in general about the idea that they're private. If they were really truly private, you could not either validate or invalidate them. But the fact is that a lot of times you can either validate them or invalidate them. And that shows they're not really private in the, in the way that some people have argued that they are. But yeah, that, that is interesting, especially because I guess if you think about it from the idea of like, uh, for example, say you set up an experiment that was made and we've actually seen this before. Um, uh, some, uh, like, I guess, uh, therapeutic, uh, like psycho psychological therapeutics or, um, or, um, therapy where essentially you've the ability to coach people to have memories that never existed, um, that never happened before. And of course, sometimes they've been Great used effect. to very horrible ends. And I would say that to the extent that you can create a system by which you can reliably manipulate people to have these, uh, memories that they didn't have, uh, I, there's replicability there, you know, there, there's, um, that's that's extremely interesting it seems like well at the very least there, there is some functional process that you can if you can manipulate on that level there there has to be something to that and obviously that isn't a completely eloquent way to describe it but at the same time if you can rigorously and repeatedly tinker with something that must mean that it isn't exactly you know completely in its own little lockbox and uh free from observation yeah, so I love your example. And we're now squarely into the second question that I raised at the beginning. Are these data reliable or not? And um, some people tend to be more skeptical and they say, no, they're not really reliable, don't use them. Um, other people are more optimistic and they say, yeah, these data are generally reliable, we can use them. And um, my own view is it depends. Um, so there are situations in which it's, it's 
it can be shown and it has been shown that um, for, you know, first person data are very unreliable and there are situations where they've been shown to be very reliable. And, you know, it depends on the task, the instructions, the conditions of the agent um, and many other variables. So it, you just have to study the situation and there may, may be many situations where we don't know yet. We just have to, you know, do more science and more methodology. And, and, and I'm sure statisticians would have a lot to contribute to this um, because, you know, statistics is one important primary way of um, studying the validity of data, you know, by correlating them with other variables that you can uh, observe independently, for example. So there are, you know, important techniques that have been developed to uh, validate first-person data. Um, for example, you know, for certain kinds of tasks, uh, correlating the first-person data of somebody who's trying to, say, do uh, mental arithmetic or even arithmetic on paper um, by correlating what they say they're doing with what eye trackers can show that they're looking at. You know, are they looking at, you know, the right kind of, you know, digits or inputs or symbols on paper that correspond to the operations that they say they're performing? Um, and in, in a lot of cases, you can show that, uh, yeah, they're accurately describing what they're doing in their mind by correlating them with um, eye tracking data, for example. Yeah, um, I had uh, a few questions that just popped in my mind as you're talking about this. One that I would like to talk about is, you know, sort of the origins of first-person data. So when did this, how long has this data been used? I assume that since we've been doing this as long as we've been trying to understand human behavior, but sort of at what point did this idea of first-person data get separated and formalized? That's uh, Actually, let, let's, let's just handle that question first, and then I'll do my next question. Yeah, so uh, it's a long story, but the short version is, um, you know, people reflected about uh, the human mind for a while, for a long time, you know, in past centuries, and they did it initially, they just did it on their own, you know, they made their own kind of observations about their own mind. So they use their own first-person data, if you will. Um, then in the second half of the 19th century, some German philosophers or call them psych early psychologists decided to make, you know, start a science of the mind and then they called psychology. And um, one area was psychophysics and they definitely relied on asking people questions about how they perceive things to be, how they experience things to be. But that in that case, you know, it's easy to correlate what people tell you with the stimulus because, you know, you stimulate people in certain ways and then you ask them how they perceive things. Like, do they perceive a difference between two shades of a color, for example? Um, but then there were other psychologists who more broadly just asked um, people, you know, how they experienced certain things. Um, and, and they called themselves, some of them called themselves introspectionists. Um, so introspection was supposed to be this process by which you access your experiences and you analyze your experiences from the first person, and then you can tell the psychologist about it. And they trained people to do that. Um, but then they kept disagreeing about the structure of experience. There were different schools, there were different theories, and, and they disagreed for a while. And eventually, some American psychologists in particular 
who call themselves behaviorists in contrast to the introspectionists said, this introspection business is not working. It's not real science. You know, they did have this idea that, well, they're trying to access this private stuff. It's not observable inside people's minds. So we just have to get rid of it. Just study behavior itself and forget about the mind. That was a bit of an overreaction. And eventually there was a swinging back of the pendulum with the cognitive revolution in the, say, 1950s or so. And so the cognitivists, so you've got the introspectionists followed by the behaviorists, followed by the cognitivists. This is an oversimplification. There were people using first-person data all along. You know, behaviorism was never just completely hegemonic and not erased every other tradition. There were other traditions as well. There's phenomenology in the picture. There's a lot of other things that we're kind of skipping. But, you know, in this oversimplified story, um, the cognitivists came along in the 50s and said, oh, actually, we can study the mind because now we have computer models and we have the idea of information processing. And um, to do that, it can be useful to ask people, say, how they're solving a problem. Okay, and we give them a kind of precise task and to solve a certain problem, um, you know, say a, a mathematical problem. And then we ask them how they're doing it. And we use that information to build a computer model of how people solve the problem. So, you know, Alan Newell and Herbert Simon are like two of the pioneers of this. And they used, um, they call it protocol analysis. Okay, but basically it's a form of first-person data where they ask people how they're solving the problem. And, and then they use the information to... Um, try to build a model of what's happening. And then since then, I think it's become more and more mainstream and more and more um, used, including, you know, not just in psychology, but also in neuroscience. You know, I think psychology and, and neuroscience have kind of merged in the last few decades to form like cognitive neuroscience. So now it's fair to say that cognitive neuroscientists use first-person data a lot of times. As you were saying that, one of the things that popped my, my mind is you, usually, for example, when I'm trying to better understand the data that's coming my way, um, I try to think about the process that generates the data. And this is something that I think a lot of people in data science, AI, machine learning, statistics, um, give a heavy amount of thought to that the, the, the actual mechanism, the real physical mechanism that's creating your data, even if that physical mechanism is a string of things together. Um, but it seems to me that uh, for the data that you're describing, even if you do think that it is data that is basically produced by a mind um, and that it's an individual mind, um, it seems to me, um, I won't describe this challenge well, but it seems to me at least fair enough to point out that it's like, yes, but it's also the mind. Uh, it's, it's come from a brain. Um, the brain is all from the same species. These species all came from the same sort of ancestral group. Um, so essentially sort of the mechanistic development of the data generating entity, um, you know, they all have a similar origin, similar physiology, like uh, in, in the big scale, like nearly identical physi physiology. Um, it, it's essentially a chemical electrical process happening from the same organ in the same species. Um, and that is what's generating your data. And so a little bit, it seems to me that um, there should at least be some burden of proof to the belief that these things would be massively different. You know, for example, like uh, if you're saying like, oh, um, the 
bile from a gallbladder or a liver or something like that, you know, if, if we were collecting samples of data from that, we wouldn't say like, oh, well, this one is very private to the gallbladder. Um, you know, that, that would, that would be a little bit strange. Like, well, it's a gallbladder. And, um, well, I think that the human brain has to be one of the most like marvelous things that our species will probably ever encounter. Um, at the same time, it is what it, it what is producing this data is a uh, chemical electrical process from an organ, and it seems to me that there at least should be a little bit of a burden or reason to believe that these things are fundamentally wrong. And you can say, you know, oh, it's easily deceived, um, because yeah, it, it certainly could be. You know, it's 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 a function, it's a process, and we, we have uh, a lot of we have a lot of inbuilt hardware that allowed us to function um, like effectively and su- survive this long. But that um, it, it, it seems that the ability to deceive it doesn't actually change the nature of the data itself. It's just that, yes, this is a, it's a system that can produce error uh, when it's corrupted, no different from um, a heart rate monitor being able to produce error if you beat on your chest on the probes or things like that, um, or if you submerge yourself underwater. So anyway, yeah, I've spoken long enough, but um, that was my, one of my thoughts. Yeah, I like it. That is how I think about it. Um, any any measurement apparatus or uh, 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 observational instrument uh, can produce um, artifacts, you know, observation artifacts um, or confounding factors can can um, affect the data uh, produced by anything. Uh, so in that regard, yeah. There can be confounding factors and artifacts um, in the middle of producing first-person data, um, and as well as producing any other kind of data. So there's no way around it. You know, just like we have to learn to use microscopes properly and um, filter out uh, uh, artifacts that are created in using microscopes, we have to learn what possible artifacts or Confounding factors might affect our first-person data. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be like um, under like, different conditions. Yeah, I was just thinking if it's like if someone gets their finger caught in the microscope, you aren't going to be like, "Aha! All these things beyond this certain microscopic level are now scientifically invalid." Or it's like you leave a little uh, a little jam smudge on your uh, on your plate or something like that, and you wouldn't say, "Ah, oh, well, this throws out this entire area." It's simply a matter of we need we need to understand the bounds in which our measurements are reliable. And that's actually a scientific area as well. Um, that just like you'd say, oh, we would have these, um, uh, oh, right. I mean, we'll send some example, you know, like positive and negative controls in lab sciences, where we essentially have these control processes to know that your measurements are reliable going forward. Similarly, um, you would have some type of control processes to make sure, for example, that you're not um, psychologically manipulating children in advance of the data that you're going to get from them and things like that. Absolutely. And uh, if you look at the history of science, as soon as a new instrument is introduced, more often than not, it takes quite a bit of time, effort, and study to understand um, how it works, when it works, and how to avoid you know, artifacts and confounding factors under various conditions. 
Um, and sometimes there's like large, large controversies, you know, about exactly how you can use these instruments well and, and, and get reliable information from them. You know, imaging does, uh, methods in neuroscience are a good example. On the one hand, they're a wonderful, amazing uh, way of getting information about the brain. On the other hand, there's like huge debates about exactly under what circumstances do they give you reliable information and under what circumstances they just give you garbage. Um, and neuroscientists have to figure it out and it takes a lot of work and a lot of statistics too. <laughs> but you can, do, you can do the same thing with first-person data. It, it may be difficult, it might take a while. And, there, and you know, at first you might be able to establish it only under certain circumstances. Um, and then you, know, you kind of keep pushing the field forward. Um, on the issue of pushing the field forward, I wanted to, I had two questions. You can choose which of the two you want to answer in which order, ever order, et cetera. Um, one of the questions was, you know, obviously when new scientific disciplines come around, new scientific methods, measurement, uh, practices, things like that, of course, there's naturally uncertainty around them, uh, by virtue of them being new and they don't have the benefit of a large amount of, you know, scientific backing and, um, uh, the support of that. Um, and I was just wondering, to some extent, are some scientific fields limited because there's an element of derision towards first-person data? Um, so the idea is essentially that you can... Um, we, we've been discussing uh, in the series quite a bit on the issue of like... So uh, one, of the, one of the issues that we've been discussing on the series is the uh, use of the term pseudoscience and whether or not it's helpful to distinguish um, good science from bad science, or alternatively, uh, which it, it is in many cases, but it can also be a useful sort of tribalistic weapon by which uh, scientists can use it to uh, deride competing scientific theories. And I was just wondering, is some of the derision that happened towards the term first-person methods um, because essentially it was some alternative form of scientific truth? And also, does using scientific, does using first-person person methods open up a field of study to being called pseudoscience? Um, I'd say yes. Um, this is how I'm going to answer that question. Um, using first-person data um, generates enough questions and problems that it, um, it can be used um, either to try to push certain ways of doing science that people might say are undesirable or scientific, or to try to expand the reach of science in kind of creative new ways. But we still have to be careful, you know, either way, you know, that we don't um, exclude something valuable or that we don't include something that is just um, a source of confusion. Um, so I think that if we were to think of first person data as private and in such a way that they cannot be validated or invalidated by ordinary public methods of investigation, uh, we would push, um, ourselves in, you know, in pseudoscience territory. Um, but if we think of them in the right way, namely as, you know, a challenging um, but otherwise legitimate um, way of studying the mind, 
um, then then we have lots of practical, detailed questions about under what circumstances are they reliable and under what circumstances are they unreliable and um, and then you know where can we push things you know a little bit um, in the hope that we'll find a reliable way of using these data uh, in new ways where we can get new information about the mine. Um, so um, to give you an example. Um, to, to, to obtain useful first-person data, we need to ask questions to our subjects. And uh, the questions have to be asked in a language. The language has to contain distinctions, you know, categories. So, you know, is there experience of type A, B, C, or D, let's say? Well, well you know, what categories are we going to use? How are we going to define them carefully? Are we going to you're going to let the subjects answer open-endedly, you know, oh, how's your experience? Just tell us. Um, and, and how useful is it going to be, you know, if we either define our categories very carefully and, and, and how do we define them? Where, does, where do those definitions come from? Or we let people just tell us about their mind. Um, so, you know, if we're not careful enough, we might end up with just a whole bunch of useless uh, reports or useless behaviors from which we can't really learn much about uh, people's minds. Um. Yeah, I, I appreciate that uh, commentary because I guess, um, for example, I hadn't, I had sort of thought that the, of one of the challenges, generally when I think of uh, going to the bounds of what reliable science is, we essentially get to well, uh, we get we get multiple reactions uh, depending from from different people. Um, one is that by uh, hitting sort of the bounds of what your most reliable, replicable science is capable of, um, that you're essentially having to operate on the bounds, and you have to be extra rigorous. And so it's it's a challenge, and you essentially need to start building and fleshing out, sort of building that island um, and building that um, that area um, around this frontier, if you will. Um, an alternative one is obviously you can give up and say, no, this is impossible. Um, but obviously, um, I'm not sure that's quite useful. And then the, another way is essentially you just go off into, you know, gobbledygook, bad science. And so, um, so for example, I think observational studies are one of the ones that I like to bring up for this, where, um, you know, observational health studies, um, there's so much bad research out there on that topic. Um, non-replicated, non, uh, they don't find good uh, comparisons controls. Uh, so a lot of the worst research out there uses you know, large observational data sets. At the same time, a lot of the absolute best scientific research uses these same data sets. They simply challenge themselves at a vastly higher level in order to try to contend with these problems. Um, so, and I was sort of viewing these first-person methods as having problems akin to that where essentially um, there is a bit of a black box of the data generation process. And therefore you can either really challenge yourself and try to, you know, even philosophically try to figure out some of the challenges of this issue, or you can throw up your hands and say, Nope, can't do anything about it. Um, and so I, I was, I was viewing these two things as something akin to each other where it can has, has the opportunity to bring out some of the best scientific work. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. And it, it's a matter of, um, 
going case by case and figuring out what are the possible confounders, what are the uh, the best ways of asking the questions, of defining the tasks, of, of defining the categories in which the questions are asked. Um, maybe even um, should we train subjects to um, uh, produce these behaviors in a more reliable way? You know, would that help or would that interfere with the task that they're supposed to be um, um, solving? You know, one one important thing that we haven't mentioned is that uh, first-person data are not limited to human beings. Um, there are people who train monkeys to um, basically report on some aspects of their experience that are not otherwise um, um, clearly or, or easily observable. So um, it, that's a very creative way of doing um, cognitive neuroscience is to train monkeys to basically you know, push different buttons depending on um, what their experience is like. Um, and and that shows that you know if this is if this is done well, it shows that this can be a very useful way of um, learning about not only human minds but even other animals' minds. I mean, not all animals can do that, but some can. Yeah, that is actually that is one of the places where I'm hoping. Oh, as you know from our previous conversations, that I am trying to bring on um, some experts on. Uh, animal consciousness and animal psychology and trying to understand what the nature of that is. Um, so yeah, I've, I've definitely, uh, branched out to some, uh, a variety of people to see if they were willing to come on and sort of handle that issue, especially because it is, um, it is significantly contentious. It has very, uh, strong implications with regard to some people's, uh, moral and ethical frameworks. And so, um, I'm, uh, I've, tried to invite on a variety of people who can sort of uh, help stake out the different territories or the different uh, uh, claims from that field. But again, I'm not an expert, so I, I'll, I'll see in the end how well I did. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that was very interesting. Um, I know that we're uh, probably running uh, short on your precious time. And so one of the questions I wanted to have uh, maybe to follow this, finish up, unless I've wasted my chance at a good question, in which case you can answer a better question. Um, is uh, it seems that uh, philosophers are are philosophers particularly interested in this issue of first person data because you know it's hard not to notice like when Dave, someone like David Chalmers is uh, looking into this field that it seems like ah oh, this is a place where where the philosophers roam and I'm just wondering is, is regardless of whether or not it has a special place in science does this have a special place for philosophers. Yeah, it definitely has a special place for philosophers because well, the, the mind is one of the, you know, traditional domains for philosophers to think about. You know, it's ourselves, you know, it's our own mind. So, yeah, philosophers have always been worried about that, you know, how to understand it, how to think about it, how to learn about it. Um, and depending on your approach, you know, there's probably going to be some role for first-person data to play. Um, but then, you know, there's different ideas about what that means, um, as we've discussed. So, yes, I think philosophers um, spend more time than most people thinking about this. Yeah, and I guess uh, not to sound too hippy-dippy, but one of the things that I like to think of when people say, it's like, oh, it's so strange that, like, the subject is the thing studying itself. You know, I don't, I don't view that as a particularly, like, unique position because I basically view 
things is like we are essentially bits of the universe and we are the bit of the universe that's looking at the universe wondering about the rest of the universe and also looking back on the bit of the universe knowing that we're a bit of the universe wondering about itself um so uh, in that regard it seems that um you know we could actually um i don't know that maybe that just sounds weird and goobly but um the, the issue where it's like yeah it's like we are it is we do need to use our mind the tool is also the subject that we're studying. But at the same time, you know, you could also say the universe is looking back and studying itself. Um, except that time, we are the bit and we aren't the whole. Um, so, but anyway, um, maybe that's that's just a random googly talk. But um, I, I do I do appreciate you guiding us through this. Uh, did you have any sort of final words other than the, what I just said was complete nonsense and you just want to clarify that? Or uh, just, you know, last thoughts are uh, good places to go. Yeah, no, I agree with you. The last thought is, uh, as much as philosophers try to like to think of things as black or white, you know, good or bad, you know, legitimate, illegitimate, uh, it's often more useful to think in terms of degrees. And, and rather than say, oh, first-person data are either good and legitimate and reliable or not good, you know, unreliable, illegitimate, um, I think it might be more useful to to think in terms of um, degrees, you know, how reliable are they and under what circumstances and therefore because of that, how legitimate are they in our science? Yeah, that actually, you've hit on one of the sort of overriding themes that has popped up um, in um, in the series, which is um, I've been using the term sort of the fallacy of the beard or the fallacy of the pile. Um, I've heard two different terms for it, which is the idea that simply because there's no distinct differentiation between two states does not mean that there isn't a differentiation between them. So just because, for example, there's not, um, when you have a pile, you take grains away, just because there's not a, like at grain 65, it is now not a pile. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a distinct difference between these two things. Um, and that has popped up quite a bit. Yeah. And applies to science versus pseudoscience too. It's not like there's necessarily like a sharp separation, you know, up to here, it's science. And then from here onward, it's pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, a lot of like, things that can make better science or worse science. And eventually you get to a place where this is not really science anymore at all. Mm -hmm. But then there's all kinds of gray areas where, you know, ah, if you can push things a little more this way, then you're going to be doing better science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially, uh, I guess, when the final bits of the, you know, uh, things aren't always uh, binary in that regard. It's also, they aren't always a single dimension of consideration as well. So it's not even like, uh, so, you know, when people say it's not just science versus pseudoscience, science, good science versus bad science versus pseudoscience versus non-science. And essentially, you might find out that you're actually reasoning along different dimensions and that um, you might have basically switched uh the, the dimension in which in which you're thinking and you might actually be talking past each other. But anyway, Galtier, I really appreciate your time today. Um, and um, thanks yeah. so much. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really want to go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. We won't go totally crazy beyond that. Forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest.
As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website. Thank you.